this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. Today we're hoping we sound a little better because I'm trying out some new software in yeah. And if it works, I'll pay the money and buy it. I want to thank, I know we kind of do this at the end, we've got some new Patreon thank you, supporters. Your swag will be going out soon. You'll be getting our newsletter and we appreciate it. Even yes. two bucks a month or five bucks Thank a month. Thank you, everybody. Helps we're us. Trying. Yes. We are trying. I mean, we're not professionals. We're trying to get our shit together. We're not professionals. We just have a passion. It for depends what we on do. what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm but not. Before, I know we have some updates and I even yes. have a main mini. Ooh, but even yes. before that, I have a confession to make. You could call it that. Ah, Bless ooh, me, ooh. Father, for I have... Oh, uh, Jesus. Uh, I mean, and I, I didn't even mean to No. Say when, in our last episode, the Albert Cochran one, when I was going on blah, 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 about my theory about what happened, I left out an important thing. Oh, okay. I just want to mention it. Like, everybody's like, God, I don't even remember that episode. But we had talked about how he put himself to police in the parking lot of the AMP, Albert Cochran, who yes. killed Janet Baxter. Yes, that's right. The reason I think he did that is because he drove her car to dump the body. His car was at the parking lot oh, of the AMP, yeah. so if anyone saw it there, he had to go back. And then in his That's story right. about going out to smoke with some guys he met in the parking lot at the AMP, he talked about having them drop him off at his brother's in Skowhegan, where her body was dumped. You can walk down River Road to Skowhegan, and it's about eight miles at the most. So he probably did walk to his brother's house and then catch a ride to AMP to get his car the next day. And that would be plausible about why his car yes, was in AMP. Yes, that makes sense. So I left that out of my theory. Okay. And I know nobody probably cared. Po- or yeah, maybe if you had told the police that in the beginning, he in would have been yeah. yeah. And I have three updates, so I'm going to make them fast. Whoa. I've got one, but yes, you go first. The first one is episode 46, the Turpin family. Um, David and Louise Turpin, the House of Horrors parents. Oh, God. And on all these, you can listen to the episode. I won't go into long explanations. But they each pleaded guilty to 14 charges of torture, adult abuse, child endangerment, false imprisonment, and more a few days ago, uh, February 19th. They faced 25 years to life in prison. Michelle Carter, episode 33, she's the young woman who urged her friend Conrad Roy to commit suicide by texting him nonstop. Another, that's very simplistic explanation of what yes. happened. Her appeal was just shot down in the Massachusetts Supreme Court. Since she was convicted in 2017, she hasn't been in jail, but um, she was ordered to start serving her 15-month sentence on um, involuntary manslaughter, but her lawyers are taking the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's considered by some uh, um, a free speech issue that she was exerting her free speech by texting him to kill himself. She wasn't there. Yeah. You can't have, by the rules of manslaughter, it's unprecedented to have somebody commit a manslaughter when they're not there. Yes. But I would say it's also until very recently, was unprecedented to have a text record of somebody. That's true, but someone could have easily done it 
before texting by, by phone or yes, yeah. but there would have been no record of them that's saying true, you're get right. back into the car. That's true. That's true. Oh, but it's a very for me. I have very mixed feelings about. I, I don't. Do I too. really don't know. I go back and well, forth on whether when we did our episode after I was doing all the research and stuff. My feeling was I. I she obviously had mental yes. issues as well, but she like many many people who prey on other people control other people and harm other people managed to manipulate him in a way and he had tried suicide before but he was on the mend in a lot of ways and i felt doing our episode that she was instrumental in his death yes she definitely and i have one more luke teeman from way back, episode seven. seven. Yeah. Um, and, you know, main murderers and, and the, the women who they love them. And the, I've and got the one from that them. one, too. So He's taking his appeal. He was convicted of killing his wife, Valerie, 34. She was shot twice in the head and neck and found buried in a shallow grave. They always <laughs> see the paper. In his parents' backyard. Gee, and what a coincidence. He, he had originally said she took off for, well, he was in Walmart. She took out a, uh, uh, and then he said she died of a heroin overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, but those gunshots to the head. Yeah. And he delivered his own closing argument. Oh, yes. He, which he, was a long rambling thing where he brought in all sorts of stuff that didn't come up in the trial. I'm sure that, that really uh, that put the jury right. Uh, right. You know. But he's taking his p- appeal to the main Supreme Judicial Court through his attorney Clifford Strike of Portland. And they're challenging emails and Facebook messages that were used as evidence against him. I almost wonder, I mean, like, when people know, do that... He's got a right to do it, whatever. He does have a right to do it. And you almost wonder when, like, people behave the way he did, if they're doing it on purpose, so they'll have a reason to appeal. But his rambling, closing argument... I think he's isn't. just clueless. I think he's he's narcissistic. I think he really thinks he can talk people yeah. into it. But he's too dumb to realize that... Everyone can see through it. I think he really thinks, well, if I just talk to them, I can get them to believe me. Yeah. Uh, you know, some narcissistic people are extremely intelligent and able to manipulate. Others are just fucking stupid. Right. And I was I watched the Ted Bundy tapes, which were not doing our, any ratings or anything. But he, but Ted Bundy was sure he could convince everybody that he, you know, right up. In, well, he the he got away with it longer than others. Yeah. But, but in any case, that's a story for another day. Yes, it is. But you have some updates. I do. T- no, just I have one. I think there is another one, but I can't think of what it is. It's probably Annie Dukin again, and that yeah. means Dukin. I'm sorry. Yeah. Annie Duke is a was that uh, blackjack player, whatever she was. It was she was on Celebrity Apprentice once. She and Joan Rivers didn't like each other. Mm. Anyways, Look this at the... is this is about uh, Noah Gaston. He was also featured in our episode seven. He's the guy that said he thought it was an intruder. He shot his wife on the steps. One of her little daughters had heard them arguing before. His story was that he thought his wife was still asleep in bed, so this person must be an intruder, and he shot this person, and it turned out to be his wife, and he killed her. But there is a lot of evidence to prove that they had been arguing prior to him shooting her, and she had been awake because she had been on the computer looking up how to get the hell how to get help <laughs> and how to get help with food because they had no money so uh it's it's a kind of an involved story so you can listen to episode seven but he he was just going to go on trial and i had an update a couple episodes ago that his um lawyer was trying to suppress some of the evidence and then the last thing i don't think we talked about it 
because it just happened. The trial had started, and uh, the judge stopped the trial. First, she just stopped it, saying that they would resume in a day or two. The judge, Michaela Murphy, Murphy, she declared a mistrial. When she first stopped the trial temporarily, there was a lot of speculation. She wouldn't say why. She just said that there was no fault. It was no fault of either side, but they just had to straighten some things out, and then the trial would resume, maybe. But then two days later, she called everybody back to court and said that it was a mistrial. And what it was, it was the state medical examiner. So Dr. Mark Flomenbaum, he was set to testify that because of the trajectory of the wound, she was at a certain height on the stairs. And then right before he was going to go to testify in trial, he looked at the photograph again to refresh his memory and changed his mind. And it threw everything into a, you know, tailspin. Uh, although I give him credit yeah. if he looked at it and said, oh, shit, I was yes, wrong. Yes, he did. He admitted yeah. that, no, oh, wait a minute. It would have changed a lot of the arguments of both sides. It is a mistrial. Noah Gaston is still in jail. He's not getting out, you know, I don't think he was granted bail. He's in jail. There will be another trial, so... And I don't think that was the only evidence they had. No, it wasn't. But it was significant. It was not the only evidence. The main reason it was a mistrial was just because that would have meant, you know, just would have fucked things up. And and it would have been a reason for appeal, I'm sure, and that Michaela Murphy... I want to say Michaela Quinn because I used to watch Dr. Uh, Quinn Medicine Woman. But she, she's she been through a lot of trials. She was a, a defense attorney, and she probably just wants to make sure that if she's going to be the judge, everything is going to be right. to the letter. In fact, she was one of Albert Cochran's defense attorneys. Yes, yeah, she was. Because we, we have a small cast of characters in this state. I know. <laughs> like, what's his name? William Stokes. He's like in Bill pretty Stokes. much everyone. So, anyways... I just want to update that. Okay. And now you have a main mini. I don't do have you? a main mini, yes. I have a main mini. This just came up last week. I was actually going to do a different main mini about the bigamist, this really gross guy. Oh, yeah, I thought that's what you were going to do. But, well, this one came up and it was better. Well, I will say about the bigamist, look up main bigamist. I don't know how he got... No, he's actually a polygamist. Yeah. I don't know how he got more than one woman to marry him. I don't know how he even got And give him her her money. Yes. But But anyways. Maybe I'll do him... Must be a sweet Do him as a story on him. I bet you do him. Yeah. You could be his fourth wife yeah okay go ahead desperately i want all women want to be married in any case sophie sergi was 20 in 1993 a student at the university of alaska in fairbanks she'd taken a semester off to save money for orthodontic work she needed and she was staying back in her hometown of pitkiss point in western alaska which was like three different plane flights from fairbanks all the way across it's a big state on April 24, 1993, she flew back to Fairbanks. She had an appointment a few days later with an orthodontist, and she wanted to visit her friends on campus. And um, she was staying with a friend on a female-only floor of their dorm, Bartlett Hall. I'm not sure if it was her roommate 
it, from you Before, know the previous yeah. year or uh, but it was a good friend in any case on her second night there she was hanging out with the friend and the friend's boyfriend and they got some pizza and were talking and she said she wanted to go smoke a cigarette and her friend was like well you know it's too cold to go outside but if you go in the bathtub room in the bathroom there's a vent and you can blow the smoke out the vent the the shower bathroom had this separate little room that had a bathtub in it hmm. yeah great until hmm. by 1:30 a.m sophie hadn't returned to the room her friend left a note on the door that she and her boyfriend were going to another dorm to sleep and when the friend returned the next morning the note was still there sophie wasn't the bed hadn't been slept in and she, the friend called the orthodontist and sophie hadn't gone to her appointment University janitors found her body that afternoon around 3 o'clock in a bathtub in the bathroom. Her sweater pulled up, her pants pulled down. The autopsy revealed she'd been stabbed twice in the right corner of her right eye while she was still alive. Killed by a single gunshot to the back of her head. She was stabbed in the face and a couple other places. She had bruises and abrasions all over. She was stabbed in the face after she died. She Mm. had been sexually assaulted. Her hair and clothes were still damp, though it was more than 12 hours later, so they surmised water had been run on her after the assault. Investigators found her cigarette lighter when they moved her body. It was like in the drain of the bathtub. She still had her socks and shoes on. Not that that matters, but... A girl who was taking a shower um, around 1.30 told investigators that she heard thumping and muffled voices coming from the tub room, which shared a wall with the shower stalls. Investigators canvassed the dorm, and they interviewed students who had been in the dorm at the time, including Stephen Downs, 18, who was from Maine, and his roommate, Nicholas Dazer, who lived on the third floor, which I guess was an all-boys floor. It was it must be like my college, where it was a girls' floor. Yeah, boys mine floor, was like that, girls. yeah. Yep. Dazer worked as a security guard on campus, and he actually was one of the people who helped secure the scene. I bet he did. Both Stephen Downs, the one from Maine, and Dazer, his roommate, said they didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. The police recovered some evidence from her body, although Alaska wasn't yet using um, DNA forensics, and also a twenty-two caliber bullet that had been used to shoot her. The investigation didn't get very far. A DNA profile confirming the suspect was male was uploaded in 2000, um, hmm. but it didn't match anybody in the FBI's database. In 2010, investigator James Stodge Dill, who had just been assigned to the case, decided to interview Dazer, the kid who had been a security guard again. Dazer had been fired a little while after Sophie was killed because he had a gun and you weren't allowed to have guns in the dorm. Mm. He denied, and this was in 2010, that he had a 22 caliber gun, like the one used in Sophie's murder, but... He remembered that his roommate, Steve Downs, did, as well as a bunch of other guns. Throw them under the bus. Still, it wasn't enough for them to apparently do much with that. Stodge still, the investigator, retired. The case went cold, as they say, until the man alleged to be the Golden State Killer last year in 2018 was nailed through DNA evidence using a different method to find people and a new investigator on the case randy mcferrin thought gee maybe i'll try that 
He submitted the DNA from Sophie's murder to Parabon Nano Labs in Virginia, which ultimately led over the course of several months to Downs' aunt, and they, excuse me, narrowed it down to Downs in December. Downs, Dazzer, the security guard's roommate, attended college in Fairbanks from 1992 to 1996. He was a 1992 graduate of Edward Little High School in Auburn, Maine. Mm-hmm. He was an Auburn native. And um, after he'd lived in Arizona for a while after college, he went back to Maine. Maine and Alaska police worked for about a week before they approached him, and the Maine State Police visited Downs on February 13th at his home in Auburn. They showed him a photo of Sophie. He said he kind of remembered, didn't know anything about what happened to her, but he remembered the picture. He remembered seeing posters of her up, and he says, Oh, I remember the pictures. It's terrible. Poor girl, he told the officers. And he suggested that they look at soldiers who were stationed at the time at nearby Fort Wainwright, that maybe they did it. Mm-hmm. A cheek swab was taken um, and tested for DNA. And unlike the olden days, these things happened really fast, and it matched. And the next day, Downs, who's now 44, was arrested. He was charged with sexual assault and murder. Wasn't he arrested at the Fireside Inn in Auburn? Or is that where he lived? I read somewhere that he was arrested at the Fireside Inn. I read somewhere he was arrested at his home at Hillside or Hillcrest Ave. Oh, yeah, I did read that too. Okay. He also said he's a registered nurse. Yes. And he made 50 grand last year, so he must not have been working very hard because they make a lot more than that these days. And he also said he was no longer had a job. Yeah. And places are desperate for registered nurses, so I don't know. He's probably been blackballed. Well, he's... Cause wasn't he... Fi- oh, go ahead. Sorry. But he, he's morbidly obese. But you oh, can yeah. tell me what you know about him. I didn't have time to look at oh, a lot. Okay. KTUU, an Alaska TV station, reported after the arrest that Auburn residents spoke about newfound national media attention for the town of just over 20,000 people as a result of the case. Quote, Auburn's a pretty quiet town usually, so it's just surprising, one man said. I just looked in the paper and said, oh, gosh, he's from Auburn. And FYI, to all you Usually non... Usually criminals are from Waterville, though, I found. To all you so. non-main people, the Lewiston-Auburn, the Twin Cities, of is one of the biggest metropolitan areas of the state. So 20,000 people may seem like a small amount to the rest of the world, maybe even to Alaska, which is where this TV station's from. But it's one of the bigger metropolitan areas of it the is. state outside of Portland, and a lot of crime happens there, including Albert Flick. Oh, who yeah. You did but a few episodes. Lewiston. Oh, no, well, was it in Auburn? Oh, yeah. Lewiston and Auburn, same difference, as we say in Maine. Don't but anyway, talk. so it's funny how where Maine is perceived outside. But anyway, and Downs' parents told WGME in Portland that they are in shock at the news of their son's arrest. Residents who live near Downs' home said they're happy that Sergi and her family will have justice after the conclusion of a two-decades-old cold case. Yes. Quote, it's unfortunate, and I feel for the parents, one neighbor said. In this day and age, nothing surprises me. Mm. Anybody can be from anywhere, and you'd never know what their past is. And I just want to say, duh, he's from Auburn, jack off. You know, it's not some <laughs> mysterious guy who wandered into town. He's, except for that time away, he's from Auburn, so there. Downs is also charged in Maine with being a fugitive from justice. And none of the stories have made clear if that has to do with her murder. Although I would think you, you have to be charged or they have yeah, to be a warrant uh, to be a perjured. Some of these stories have been poorly written. I know I'm always saying that. 
And so it's not clear where that charge came from. He last week was in Androscoggin County Court. He's fighting extradition saying, there must be some mistake. Well, I'm too big. Yeah, he is. Maybe he can't fit in the airplane. I shouldn't. No, I'm See, really, I'm really not one we, to be fat we shaming. We shouldn't fat shame, but I'm he's sorry. fatter than we are. Yeah, he he's is. as fat as like if you put the two of us together. Like the photo of him. I know was, when I saw it in the yeah. paper, I'm like, oh, he's yeah. so big. Yeah, maybe because he was eating away his eating guilt. his guilt. Yeah, Assistant District Attorney Andrew Matulis asked that he be held without bail because he could be a flight risk having lived outside the state. His attorney at that first appearance, it was a court-appointed attorney, said he's a lifelong Maine resident and asked for a $5,000 bail, which was not granted. A hearing is set for March 18th when he's expected to return to court on the fugitive charge, so maybe we'll find out a little more about that. His The judge appointed Lewiston lawyer James Howaniak, Howaniak yeah. as his attorney, and so you know something about what No, happened? one of the articles, um, he got fired from one of his nursing jobs because women that worked with him, two of them oh, said they, he made them feel uncomfortable geez. by things he said and things he did. Jeez, I forgot all about that. Thank yes. you, because I was going to add but that. I, but they didn't have enough details. I, I like details. What did he say? What did he do? And, I want to know. But you, but you have to think, somebody who would do something like that when he's 18... Even though he wasn't in any of the DNA databases. Well, I, maybe not. I mean, I hate, to, like I said, we keep dwelling on his size. But it's harder to be a serial killer you're if, you're, if you're like 400 pounds, which he is. He, so maybe he, he became really fat to keep himself from coming. I don't know. But, I mean, how are you going to get away? You can't run. You can't do anything. Right. I mean, I'm not saying you've got to be like Bruce Jenner right. to be a serial the killer. The other thing is, who knows what things he did Ugh. that weren't killing people, you know, sexual assault. And I'm not, he hasn't been convicted, he's only been charged and stuff, but you kind of wonder what else is going on. I wonder about that fugitive from justice. I know. Charge. And it's not like he was hard to find. I have, you know, internet acquaintances from Alaska, and it, it's a cold case that's been a lot of people were wondering about for years. It's something that's well known, because someone I know that has a podcast... All the oh, articles. Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Oh, yeah. She she posted about it the same day I posted about oh, it. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. on both ends of it, it's, right. it's and All the articles about it have said that it's been like this thing that's haunted Alaska well, for years. And poor. it also brings into play the whole question of, you know, people who upload their DNA because they want to find their yes. ancestry. And then it's used. Bad. I yeah. mean, I know, I, under, I, know I see there's both too sides. Many of it. Issues to there get are into many issues about it today. Although Oop. I no, I was gonna say I will say uh, I would throw if I thought one of my family members was a murderer, I'd fucking oh me too, yeah, in a heartbeat. Okay, so I'm the one that's doing my story, and we're gonna do something a little uh, different from the beginning. We've alternated week to week. I do one, then Mo does one, but next week. I mean, not week, week. episode <laughs> to episode. That's pretty. That's pretty optimistic. Week to week. Well, when we first started, for the first year, I think we did them every week. We tried back when I was unemployed. Yeah, <laughs> those were the days. <laughs> but <laughs> but my story. Uh, it, there's two kind of linked stories, and I was actually going to do it as one story, but we're supposed to get a big snowstorm tomorrow. So I didn't have a chance to, I would have been writing tonight, so I didn't finish it. And then you would have had to drive up. 
Yeah, during the snowstorm. Storm. So instead, it isn't short. So, but I'm gonna do the first part this time, and then I'll finish it next time. That works. And give Mo a break. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so anyways, let me start. At 10.45 p.m. on May 16, 1990, the emergency 911 line in Los Angeles received a call from a frantic man saying someone had been shot in his house. The man identified himself as Marlon Brando, and when the operator reportedly asked him to repeat it, he said, Marlon Brando, do you need me to spell it? (laughs) He should have done a Marlon Brando imitation. Within minutes, L.A. Fire Department Captain Tom Jefferson arrived at the Brando <laughs> Tom Mansion. Tom Jefferson. <laughs> oh, he's George Jefferson. Why are you laughing about Tom Jefferson? Because he was the president. <laughs> oh, Thomas. That's right. <laughs> I was thinking about George Jefferson. <laughs> I'm like, that's George Jefferson. Who is Tom Jefferson? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. Did you smoke some dope? No. Tom Jefferson arrived at the Brando mansion. He was brought to the den where he saw a man sprawled on the couch like he was watching TV. The TV was on and scanning through the channels. According to Captain Jefferson, the man had a cigarette lighter in one hand and a remote control in the other. He was Dag Drolette and he was dead by a single gunshot to the face. And by the way, I'm probably going to mispronounce a bunch of Tahitian names, so I'm sorry in advance. I don't know if Drolet should be Drolet. I can assume it's Drolet. Let's just pronounce them the way we would in I'm going to do it the way <laughs> I do it. Dag Drolet was the son of a prominent Tahitian family and the boyfriend of Brando's 20-year-old daughter, Cheyenne, who was pregnant. She was staying with her father at Marlon's behest. Marlon did not trust the hospitals in Tahiti and wanted Cheyenne to give birth in L.A. And she was also there for some psychiatric help. Mm. Dag had been visiting to be there for the birth of his child. He and Cheyenne had been a couple for about four years. He was 26 at the time of his death. And she was 19? She was 20. Their relationship was rocky. Cheyenne struggled with mental illness and substance abuse. And we'll discuss more about that later. The shooter was Brando's son, Christian, who was 32 at the time. Christian told police that he had not meant to kill Dag, only scare him. Christian and Cheyenne had been out to dinner earlier in the evening. During dinner, Cheyenne had confided in her half-brother that her boyfriend, Dag, had been physically abusive to her. Christian, though he hadn't really been raised with Cheyenne, felt protective of his 12 years younger sister, who, as I mentioned, was pregnant, and Dag Drillette was a large man. He was 6'3 and 270 pounds. Oh, he's a big um. He wasn't fat. He was just very, he was a good-looking guy, very tall. And and just but well built. Christian, who admitted to being drunk at the time, told police he wanted to confront Dad. Memo to everyone: If you're drunk, don't shoot at somebody, quote unquote, just to scare them, because you don't know what's going to. Well, happen. this is what he said: He didn't shoot at him just to scare. Oh, okay. Him. He told police he wanted to confront Dad about the abuse. He said he pointed the 45 handgun. I'm sorry, as usual, I know nothing about guns, so whatever. If my ignorance shows, I'm sorry. Why? Why a 45? I don't know. I mean, what do you have to know? I don't know. He pointed the forty-five handgun at Dag, and it went off when Dag grabbed it, and the two men struggled with it. There, there were no witnesses to the actual shooting, though Marlon, his wife, and Cheyenne's mother, Tarita Terapia, and Cheyenne were all in the 12-room house and heard the shot. 12 Mar- rooms. 
It's a mansion. It's a Bel Air mansion. He's I, Marlon fucking Brando. I know, but what I don't understand, no matter how rich you are, I don't get what do you do with all these I rooms? I don't know. Fill them with your stuff that you buy. I from. guess. Well, he had lots of people. He had 11 kids. Oh, yeah, that's right. Two. You have a lot of hangers on. Um, your entourage. Yeah. Marlon Brando rushed into the room and attempted mouth-to-mouth resuscitation before calling 911, and then he tried it again after he called 911, but Dad was already dead. Christian Brando was arrested on the spot. Well, once the police got there. Police also confiscated a 44 caliber carbine, a shotgun, an MAC-10 machine pistol, an M14 assault rifle, and a silencer. Jesus. According to the LA Times, Christian was a, quote, gun enthusiast. (laughs) I should have said this at the beginning. I got from a, a bunch of different sources, but a lot of it was LA Times and People Magazine and but mostly there was a lot of la tom stuff when christian was arraigned two days later he pled not guilty to the charge of first degree murder the santa monica outlook quoted christian saying according to police christian said this i didn't want to shoot him if i was going to kill that guy i would have taken him to franklin canyon and hit him in the head with a baseball bat and pulverized the guy that sounded like it would have been harder to do though especially because christian wasn't I mean, he wasn't a bad-sized guy, but Dag but was, Dag a, big was a big guy. Yeah. Marlon Brando was quoted in the Los Angeles Times, again, according to police, that Christian, quote, always had a very bad temper and could be explosively violent when angry. Mm-mm. Marlon didn't believe that Dag had abused his daughter. He described Cheyenne as, quote, having psychological problems and said she had made false accusations against others, including family, in the past. Indeed, she had accused Marlon of sexual abuse although her claims were never taken seriously. Hmm. I, frankly, I don't think he was around her enough to abuse her. Well, you don't. it only takes a minute. Are you saying you think he did it? Cause, no. no, I'm just saying. I know, I know. But, I mean, she was... If you're not physically near a person, right. you can't really do it. Right, I'm but saying. I'm just saying in the lens of 2019, yes, maybe things would have been looked at differently. I, maybe, but she was... But she had definitely had issues. She was schizophrenic and probably borderline personality. She used to make shit up constantly, so she mm-hmm. was... Another call Marlon made that night was to his good friend, civil rights attorney William Kunstler. On May 21st, Kunstler argued for Christian to be re- released on bail. He had letters of support from a bunch of people, including Jack Nicholson, who was a neighbor of Marlon's. Well, then. The DA, Stephen Barshop, said the killing was premeditated. He said the angle of the wound showed that Dag had been sitting and shot from someone standing above him, not in a struggle, as Christian claimed. L.A. Municipal Court Judge Rosemary Shumsky denied bail. And also, in the beginning, that captain said that he was holding a lighter in, in one hand. So he was holding things in his right, hands. Right, right. So, which means he wasn't struggling with the gun. But other people argued that he didn't have anything in his hands. So I don't really know. And one of the things I read said that Christian's attorney said that Dag wasn't holding anything in his hands. So I don't know. I mean, it's like, don't they have crime scene photos? I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know. You'd wonder... I have found just, and I think I mentioned this last week too, that like in the newspaper when we'd go look through affidavits yes. to, that that were filed in court, there would often be discrepancies, yes. be, especially the first officer on the scene, they're not necessarily taking yeah. in everything that a crime scene investigator is going to and their impressions may be different. 
So here's a f quote of the first of many by People Magazine that loves to fat shame Marlon Brando. <laughs> it says, quote, After the hearing, the elder Brando, his enormous girth straining at the belt of his gray slacks, was sworn by reporters asking how he felt. It's impossible to describe, he said. You'd have to go through what I'm going through to know how it feels. What he was going through. What about poor Christian and Cheyenne and poor Dag? Like, you'd have to be going through what I'm going through. Sorry, I just thought that was kind of... First of all, let's talk about the victim. His full name was Dagobert Drolet. Drolat. Whatever. Drolet. Drolet. Dag's father, Jacques, was a member of the Tahitian parliament and a friend of Marlon. And Marlon had lived in Tahiti for many years. Because of mutiny on the bounty. Yes, we'll get to that. Dag and Cheyenne met at a party or some kind of get-together when she was 16 or 17. And he was early 20s. Marlon Brando was one of the most famous people in French Polynesia, if not the most, at the time. He owned his own island, Tetiaroa, I'm going to say. So, of course, the Drolets hobnobbed with him because, you know, all the important people. It was difficult to find much information about Dag, but I tried. Dag's parents, Jacques and Lisette, were divorced at the time of his death. Dag's sister died in 1973 in a Pan Am plane crash in Tahiti. Oh. After Dag's death, Jacques told the LA Times, It is strange, that was his quote, that both his children with Lisette quote, died in the Americans' hands. Mm-hmm. Jacques Drolet, his ex-wife Lisette, and her husband, Albert Lacalle, were all interviewed by the L.A. Times shortly after Dag's murder. According to the three, Dag had been trying to end his relationship with Cheyenne for some time. They called Cheyenne, quote, spoiled and unstable, and the Brando family, quote, unhappy. Marlon paid for the couple to come to his home, but Dag's parents didn't think it was a good idea. Jacques said, quote, that's why I'm a mess, because I didn't do what I had to do, insist he not come. I said, you're going to meet a tragedy with that girl. Your life together smells of tragedy. It smells of death. That's <laughs> like a movie script. I know. A bad movie According script. to his family, Dag's trip to L.A. with Cheyenne was a final gesture to help the mother of his unborn child before separating from her. He told his parents a few weeks before leaving for L.A. that he thought it was better they separate. Cheyenne had suffered mental health issues since a car accident the year before, which I'll talk about later. And her erratic behavior had worsened. Marlon brought her to L.A. for psychiatric care along with him wanting her to give birth in the United States. Just before Dag left for the States, Jacques said he told his son, quote, Dag, stop this life with Cheyenne because she's not balanced. You will have great difficulties, perhaps suicide, perhaps she can kill you or you can die, both of you because of her. They were living apart during this trip. Jacques told the LA Times that Dag was sleeping in the den, the room where he was shot. He slept on a mattress on the floor. Ugh. Cheyenne slept in her own room. Jacques Trollette said that after the car accident, Cheyenne had become, quote, very violent in her words and her manner. She has said very serious things. She has hit people. She hit Dag when she was in a rage. Then he said, this is an interesting quote, We make a distinction between a slap and a blow. A blow is different. Dag never beat Cheyenne. Perhaps on one or two occasions. What, he just slapped her around? When Cheyenne was in a rage, she was 
scratching him, hitting him, throwing things at Dag. Perhaps he gave her one or two slaps, but never beat her and nothing at all since she was pregnant. Never. Dag is too well behaved. Mm. Jacques said that Dag told him Cheyenne had become, quote, impossible to live with. And then Jacques said, I've heard her saying she was the most beautiful girl, the most intelligent girl, and the richest girl by her father's fortune. Hmm. She had boyfriends before Dag, but according to Jacques, for the first time, it was not her who was throwing someone away. At that moment, all her ego, all her pride was wounded. Dag's stepfather, Albert Lacall, said that about six hours after Dag was shot, Marlon called and, quote, said it was an accident. We more or less accepted that it was true. But then, when they got to L.A., Quote, we asked him to see us, and he refused. It's normal if it's an accident to visit, to see where Dag lived, gather his things, hear of his last hours. They later got a call from Marlon's lawyer, but by then, quote, we knew better how it happened, and we didn't want to see him. Dag's parents lay a lot of blame for their son's death on Marlon Brando himself. Jacques said that Marlon was, quote, an adopted Polynesian, and as such, understood that, quote, in Polynesia, the rules of hospitality are very strong, very important, very serious. When you invite someone into your house, you have duties and obligations. You must protect a guest materially, morally, physically, and intellectually. I don't know what that means by intellectually, but mm. According to Jacques' way of thinking, Marlon knew that his daughter was not very well balanced. He knew that Christian Brando was bad-tempered, that there were arms around in the house belonging to Christian, and he knew that there could be some friction between people in his own house. But he didn't protect my son. On the contrary, my son was killed like a dog in his house. <laughs> Jacques Trollette called Mar Marlon's mansion, quote, a bunker with many weapons. Cheyenne Brando only gave a short interview to police after her boyfriend's killing, then returned to Tahiti. She gave birth to a son, a child that the Trollettes wanted to be tested to make sure Dag was the father. Hmm. Which he was. I don't know if he was tested, but he was the father. Right. Cheyenne Brando was the youngest child of Marlon and Tarita Tar Terapia, a French Polynesian actress who met Marlon on the set of Mutiny on the Bounty, the 1962 film. She played Marlon's love interest, Mayamiti. Mm. When they first Marlon was still married to his second wife, Movida Castaneda. Marlon and Tarita married in 1962. She gave birth to Simon T. Hotu in 1963 and Cheyenne on February 20th, 1970. And along the way, Marlon had kids with other women. Marlon and Tarita divorced in 1972, and the children lived in Tahiti. Marlon didn't want the children to come to the United States, saying, quote, As Tahitians, they are too trusting. They would be destroyed in the pace of life in this state. Cheyenne didn't see much of her dad growing up. According to childhood friends, she idolized him and was proud to be his daughter, but she barely saw him. Cheyenne was very close to her mother, even in the teen years when things can get strained. But she started to resent her father during the that time. She later said, I have come to despise my father for the way he ignored me when I was a child. He came to the island maybe once a year, but really didn't seem to care whether he saw me or not. He wanted us, but he didn't want us. As she entered her teen years, she started using a lot of drugs and ended up dropping out of high school. She began modeling. She's often called a French model, but I don't know what is meant by that. 
And I'm assuming she went to France to model. I had a hard time finding out exactly what she did, but Unless she's beautiful. Unless French Polynesia is Fran- one of France's... It is, but I mean... So maybe that's what But I mean. she was beautiful and famous, and she did do modeling. So, I mean, she right. has a famous name. They're going to have her modeling shit. She was always wanting her father's attention and had to compete with a lot of people to get it. Women and other siblings, mostly. In 1989, she asked Marlon if she could visit him on the Toronto set of the movie The Freshman with Matthew Broderick. Marlon said no way. He didn't want any of his kids involved in show business. I think he just didn't want them around. Yeah, I I think that's it. Cheyenne also had had a a big fight with Dag, her boyfriend, so she was kind of worked up. She borrowed Christian's Jeep and took off driving at speeds of 100 miles an hour, and this was in Tahiti. She lost control of the car and crashed into a ditch. Her jaw was broken, part of her ear was ripped off, and her face was scarred. Marlon flew her to L.A., where she underwent surgery to fix her injuries. Marlon stayed by her side at the hospital. Supposedly, he kept vigil. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm of the opinion that Cheyenne had mental issues prior to the accident. A lot of things I read place the blame for her behavior on the car accident. It sounds like she did, you know, and she could have had a traumatic head injury. Well, maybe, but... Well, the kind, because she had facials from your brain rattling around. Yes, I understand. That exacerbated stuff, but it sounds like she from had what issues. you said, she, that had she emotions. already had issues. Yeah, I think the accident might have been caused by her issues. It may have been her first suicide attempt or attention-getting attempt. Right. In any case, the narrative is that after this accident, she felt disfigured and began a downward spiral of depression, erratic behavior, suicide attempts. Mm. I think she already had a lot of that those problems, I don't think it was her disfigurement that caused her problems. I think she could have had a brain injury that spurred more problems. So that she right. was diagnosed as schizophrenic and she had major issues. And also, like even if she was feeling disfigured, an accident can cause a lot of trauma and depression and stuff. But that's not to say she wouldn't have had issues without the accident, but the accident was something to focus. Yes, because she had a lot of cosmetic surgery and she looked fine. She was still beautiful. She was in and out of mental hospitals and rehab centers for continued drug use. According to People Magazine, after her death, the places she was in a mental hospital or drug rehab included Paris, San Francisco, Stockbridge, Massachusetts, Ah. and Tahiti. A month before her fateful visit to L.A. in April of 1990, an acquaintance, Dominique Petras, went horseback riding with the pregnant Cheyenne. Petras warned Cheyenne not to gallop and had to hold the horseback because Cheyenne said, no, I want to go for it. Hmm. She also said Cheyenne was laughing inappropriately and blowing her nose on her shirt. Petra said... Wait, there's something wrong with blowing your nose on your shirt? Uh, apparently. <laughs> Petra said, I asked her if something was wrong, and she said it was none of my business. Then came the trip to L.A. and the death of the father of her baby. As I said, after Dag's killing, Cheyenne returned to Tahiti, where she gave birth to a, her baby boy, Tuki. T-U-K-I. He's a model, and he's very handsome. But life was a struggle for Cheyenne. In 1993, she said, quote, When I think of Dag, I want to be dead and be with him. She had lost most of her friends on Tahiti. As an old high school friend, Hapua Tiura said, quote, Afterwards, it was a shame. This is a small island. People talk. Her friends were afraid of her. She had no more good friends after the drama. In 1995, while living in and out of the 
Viami Mental Hospital, Cheyenne lost custody of her son Tuki, then four. A judge ruled because of her depression, Cheyenne's mother, Tarita, should raise the boy. And she was in the hospital almost as much as she was out. She was in and out, in and out. A couple weeks later, she left the hospital to go visit family eight miles away for Easter Sunday. According to the neighbor, the family was happy visiting, and this was 1995. According to the neighbor, the happy, the family was happy visiting and enjoying a beautiful day. But when Tarita went to church and brother Taihuda went on an errand, Cheyenne went up to her bedroom and hanged herself with a rope from a beam in the ceiling. She had attempted suicide many times in the past, twice a few weeks after Dag's death, once by a drug overdose and another by trying to hang herself from a tree with a chain. According to William Kunstler, Marlon didn't keep sharp knives in his home, afraid of what his daughter might do to herself. She was almost continuously hospitalized all over the world, though some speculated it was an attempt to keep her from having to testify against Christian at his trial. And we'll discuss the effect her absence had on that outcome later. I look forward to it. But even when she was brought back to Tahiti from France to testify at a hearing about Dag's death, one requested by the Drollet family, her statements were nonsensical, and the judge dismissed her as, quote, mentally disabled. Cheyenne's old friend Hapua didn't think she was mentally ill. Quote, everyone says Cheyenne was mad. She was not mad at all. She was just depressed because of her name. What's wrong with Cheyenne? (laughs) (laughs) Other of her Tahitian family and acquaintances attributed different reasons for her suicide. Ingrid Trollette, Dag's older sister, said, Cheyenne made something wonderful, beautiful to die for love. It was like Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yeah. The mayor of Fa'a, the town where the funeral was held, said the suicide was, quote, a beautiful gesture. She loves her boyfriend with no limits. She's young and she tried many times to do it. She didn't succeed, but then she did. When Cheyenne died, her father, described by People magazine as, quote, 71 and stunningly obese. (laughs) Oh, they're so mean. I know. Did not attend the funeral. Although we were mean about the guy in the mini, 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 so. But every article I read with Marlon Brando, they have to mention his weight. Every single article. When Marlon got the call telling, like, they had one about the freshman, how he had been in a better, not wasn't the freshman, it was Don Juan DeMarco. And they were saying he's in such a better mood. And they said he even posed with people um, sitting on his considerable lap. (laughs) I don't know. Like any chance they get to to throw some shade at him. When Marlon got the call telling him the sad news, he reportedly cried, Oh God, no, and slumped to the floor. A doctor came and advised him against flying. It's like an eight-hour flight. After that, Marlon was reclusive. He would not respond or answer calls or attempts to reach him. Actor Carol O'Connor, whose son Hugh had committed suicide the previous month, tried to get in touch. Marlon had called Carol to offer support and sympathy after Hugh's death. And I remember that. I, I do too, yeah. were so close to each other. Those close to Marlon were concerned. His agent, Nan Robinson, said, We want to keep Marlon alive. He tends to get very remorseful. When he loses even a dog, he cries for days. I can't imagine what it's like for him with his little girl gone. Mm. Marlon mended fences enough with the Drollet family to have Cheyenne buried next to the father of her son, Dag. 
So they're buried together or next to each other. They're in Tahiti. Christian was unable to attend the funeral. He was still serving his 10-year sentence for manslaughter in California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. He ended up serving only about five years. He got out of prison a year after his younger sister's suicide. When Christian went to trial in 1991, he was represented by Robert Shapiro, who of course later represented O.J. Simpson. The prosecutors... One of the many who were represented. Yes. I don't think we're ever going to do that one. No. The prosecutors wanted Cheyenne to testify, saying she was the only witness to what happened. In a 1991 story on the tabloid show A Current Affair, which had a, <laughs> yeah, the title that. had the title Bloodshed at Brando's, Steve Dunleavy, who I forgot about, do you mind? Yeah, he's I a British her. guy. Yeah. He reported that Cheyenne is, quote, beautiful but highly emotional. And he also said that she was the sole witness, which she really wasn't a witness. She would be the one to know what was actually going on between the two men. I would say to be a witness, you would have had to have been in the room. An eyewitness. But she's a witness to to the... Right, the dynamic. Yeah. There was a lot of pretrial publicity, which I forgot about till I saw this. It was on a lot. It was on these shows, the tabloid shows. Yeah, oh, I was obsessed with Christian was initially charged with first-degree murder, as I said, but the judge finally stopped the prosecution from attempting to bring Cheyenne back from Tahiti, which they kept trying to do. They wanted her really bad. Without Cheyenne, there was no way to really prove what happened, to prove it was premeditated murder as a prosecutor claimed. Christian ended up pleading guilty to manslaughter as part of a plea agreement and was sentenced to 10 years. Obviously, he, his sentence was reduced. Marlon stood up in court at the sentencing and asked the judge to go easy on his oldest son. He said, I think perhaps I failed as a father. And I'm like, you think? Yeah, Marlon. Mm-hmm. That was sad, though. I remember seeing that, even though I thought Marlon Brando was an asshole, that when they showed him in court and he was, like, like crying, and yeah, it was well, sad. But, you know, then don't be a... Don't be a shitty father. Yeah. I know. Christian Debbie Brando was born May 11th, 1958. His same age as my ex-husband, mm. almost. His mother was Marlon Brando's first wife, actress Anna Koshvi. Anna's real name was Joan O'Callaghan and although she was born in Calcutta she grew up in Wales. Her father worked for like the train or something I don't know. Something in Calcutta but for the government, the British government or something. Her parents were Irish and they claimed they were her natural parents though Anna said she was Indian. She said her biological father was an architect named Devi Kashvi and her mother was a woman named Selma Goose who was Indian. In one article uh, that I read but I couldn't find it again, her father William Patrick O'Callaghan says something like there is no Indian blood in mine or my wife's family which doesn't really address the issue of Anna's lineage does right. it? Right. She looks Indian to me or at least part Indian. There's a big when gulf see, between looking Irish and looking. Whatever her background like I said for what it's worth she definitely looks Indian and she reminds me of Padma Lakshmi. They look uh-huh. similar. Without seeing what the O'Callaghan's look like, it's hard to tell. She was quite beautiful and played just about every ethnicity back in the 1950s. Her first movie was with Spencer Tracy. Oh, um, what movie? Can't think of the name of it, but there's like a plane crash and she's some Hindu girl that's in bed and he's talking to her. I don't know. That sounds... American Indian, African American, Korean... You know how they like they used to do right it? because the, you can't get the people who are actually those ethnicities to be in a movie. Apparently not. The only reason she and Marlon Brando married was because she was pregnant with Christian. They had met in the commissary at the studio. <laughs> Marlon said he only intended to stay married to her for a year. 
Their marriage lasted 11 months. As a newlywed, she told in, her, in some interview, she was still married when she said this, quote, living with Marlon is like a afternoon at the races. Short periods of orgiastic activity followed by long periods of boredom and anticipation. He's almost never home. She also said that he, quote, attracts women like feces attracts flies. <laughs> In her memoir, she said that Marlon was abusive. The memoir was 1979, Brando for Breakfast. She said he was a balding, paunchy hypochondriac, a middle-aged, wheezing superman, an egomaniac, a rock upon which other egos founder. She also said within his being lurks the unregenerate soul of a Cro-Magnon. The custody of young Christian was fought over bitterly by his parents for years. Some accounts say 12 years, some say 16. Anna had substance abuse issues, mostly alcohol, but also drugs. Anna took the five-month-old Christian when she left Marlin and was initially awarded custody. But Anna's dependence on alcohol and drugs made her a shitty mother. One day, a neighbor called the headmistress of Christian's Montessori preschool, actress Dolores Taylor. The neighbor was concerned about him. She went to Anna's house to check things out and found Christian standing at the edge of a swimming pool. Oh. She went inside and found Anna passed out, lying in her own vomit. In 1965, a judge temporarily put Christian into his Aunt Frances' custody, Marlon's older sister. He was later returned to Anna. Then in 1970, Marlon and Anna were awarded joint custody. In 1972, Christian was a student at Ojai Military Academy, so he was like 13 or 14. His mother said he had problems adjusting, and according to the headmaster, had set fire to the dormitory. Uh-oh. While Marlon Brando was off filming Last Tango in Paris, Christian was spirited away by Anna to Baja, California, Mexico, to stay with some friends of hers described at the time as hippies. One report said she offered them money to hide him, but when they wouldn't pay, they kidnapped him. But another report said she just offered money to, for them to hide him, and they hid him, I don't, so I don't know. I also read reports that called it a hippie commune, which maybe it was, I don't know. In any case, Marlon hired private investigators to find Christian, and he was found living in a tent, ill from bronchial pneumonia. Anna was pulled over near the Mexican border and arrested for drunk driving and disorderly conduct. Not surprisingly, Marlon took her back to court and won custody. Marlon said at the time that Christian was, quote, a basket case of emotional disorder. Christian dropped out of high school and did drugs. But who didn't in the 1970s? I mean, well, we didn't. Well, we weren't in high school. I was in the 1970s. Yeah, that's true. Well, I graduated I in 79. Yeah, but you were in California. No, I wasn't. He spent a lot of time at his father's home in Tahiti, where the family was ever-changing. Some accounts said that Marlon had nine children, and some say 12. Mm -hmm. I know he had a lot of them. He had Christian, two with his second wife, two with Tarita, so that's five, and then three with his housekeeper. So that's eight. And then he had at least one more when, right around the time Cheyenne killed herself, he had a baby with another Ooh, maid. Ooh, somebody was having sex with him. He's Marlon Brando. Uh. Christian once said, the family kept changing shape. I'd sit down at the breakfast table and say, who are you? Or maybe, who are you? Or, who are you? And who are you? <laughs> and you are? He struggled with his identity as the son of Marlon Brando. He tried different things. I saw an interview on YouTube, some local TV show from the mid-1980s, earlier mid-1980s, from the clothing styles. Christina Crawford was on, and it was before Mommy Dearest came out. She didn't talk about her mother as badly as the book did. Mm. 
And Christian Brando was on. The interview is really weird and creepy. But what were they talking about, being children yes. of famous people? Yes, they were basically just talking about themselves, though. And yeah. Christian Brando was a tree surgeon at the time. <laughs> um, according to People magazine, at the time of his arrest, they had an article about him. He fell and was injured when he used to work as a tree surgeon, and he didn't... <laughs> tree surgeon. Don't let me be fat. I'm sure that no, none of them have ever heard stupid jokes like that. Well, usually they come like arborists. Or a tree trimmer. Yeah. Um, well, back then they they used the term tree surgeon. I don't think they do anymore. But he was injured and he couldn't keep doing that job. I actually read the comments on the YouTube, which I usually don't because um, they always they're suck. always really, really Horrible. Barely literate. But somebody said they knew him when they were young, and he was a nice guy. They said he was down to earth and nice. The other things I read about him said he was shy. He didn't like to tell people his last name, and uh, so and he Maybe seemed he nice. His on the, name. I know. Well, you know, it's got good and bad things, I'm sure. But he seemed like on that, he seemed kind of like a nice guy. He didn't seem like an asshole. But then again, substance abuse and alcohol can make you be kind of jerky. On the Inside Edition show about him, (laughs) they talked to a bunch of his ex-girlfriends who said he was sweet and never violent, and they all hinted that he was a really good lover. (laughs) They all did. They're like, well, I don't want to go into much detail. (laughs) (laughs) Inside Edition is so cheesy. I used to watch it all the time. I know, I did too. His father bought a house in the Hollywood Hills, a small ranch on Wonderland Avenue, and he rented it to Christian. When he was a young boy about... 10, Christian had a couple of bit parts in movies, but he wasn't much interested in acting. In 1988, an Italian film producer, Carmen De Beneditis, cast him as the lead in his film What's at Stake, playing a hitman. He didn't want the role at first, but De Beneditis talked him into it. He said as he knew as soon as he saw his photograph, he was the guy. I think he when he heard his name. Yeah, I think so, too. I think this is kind of an infuriating thing, and it sounds almost like something from a a movie. Um, When Christian got to Rome, Marlon contacted him and told him he wanted him to return to L.A. along with the producer to discuss the movie. So Christian's been offered this movie part, and then Marlon's like, oh, I want to talk to you guys about it. Right, and fly back from Rome to L.A. Yes, he summoned them. Uh Well, if you're the movie producer and Marlon Brando's calling, aren't you going to go? Yeah. He's that's very controlling. I would just like, come back, come on, on no, over but, to Rome, fat boy. No wonder Christian wasn't interested in being an actor. No. De Benedita said, when I went to meet Marlon Brando, I noticed that when Christian is near his father, he seems to shrink. He becomes a gnat. He seems to be crushed by the force of his father's <laughs> wow. character. It's a very heavy load to be called Christian Brando. Mm. Change your name, kid. Marlon suggested Christian should be in more scenes, but otherwise gave his blessing. It's like, gee, thanks. According to Christian's friend and sometime roommate, Bill Cable, who also had a bit part in the film, Christian is so sensitive and against violence that he didn't even want to do that role. He got like 30000 for it. And of course, you know, he's a hitman in it, so he's shooting guns. So, of course, Inside Edition kept having to show clips of it. (laughs) 
As for Christian's gun collection, Bill Cable said, When we came back from Italy, he started getting threatening phone calls. Someone would say, I'm going to kill your whole fucking family, and I'm going to start with you. I got a lot of those calls when I was at his house, because he was the roommate. So he right, was. Yeah. Back then, people actually answered the phone. Yeah. So we both went out and got guns. Yeah, but that's different from having a gun collection. I know. But, you know, that's what, I think his friend's just saying that because yeah, Christian's so. on trial. According to the guy who ran the country store down the hill from Christian's house, Christian often bought food for homeless people. He said of Christian, he was my friend. He was very nice. <laughs> was the quote? Tommy Bina, the shopkeeper, told People magazine that Christian once gave a gang leader his own pickup truck so the gang would leave Bina alone. He had last seen Christian at 8 p.m. This is Tommy Bina still. The night of the shooting. Bina said, I asked him how he was and he shook his head and said something like, not great. He seemed very depressed, but he wasn't drunk or anything. Bill Cable said he'd played pool with Christian a couple days prior to the shooting and he seemed fine. And he wouldn't have shot anyone except to save a life. Christian's ex-wife, Mary McKenna, who had accused him of abuse at the time of their divorce, and said he threatened to kill her, told people he was very protective of his sister, but not the sort who would kill someone. Oh, really? (laughs) Because you told the judge that he threatened to kill you. They had a very acrimonious divorce. Well, that's what one article said, and then another article said they divorced without, they didn't say without acrimony, but they... Right, it was... Uh, Whatever. Yeah. Christian later told the LA Times about Cheyenne. I feel like a complete chump for believing her. Marlon once called his oldest child a gun-toting alcoholic. (laughs) But the shooting and aftermath seemed to have lit a fire under his ass to try to be a better father. He said to the judge at the sentencing, I tried to be a good father. I did the best I could. Maybe that was the best he could. Both Marlon's parents were alcoholics and abusive. He seemed unable to express love or even have true intimacy. Mm. I've not seen his speech at sentencing recently, but like I said, it was, I thought it was sad. Yeah, it sounds sad. (laughs) I I find it, I'd have to see it to know whether he was sincere. An acquaintance of Marlon's, well, he's a good actor, Marlon. Yeah. An acquaintance of Marlon said, in his own clumsy, stupid, ego-driven way, Marlon wanted the best for his kids. But he was a very limited man. I don't think he ever gave his kids free reign. Marlon did visit Christian regularly in prison and was reportedly trying to do more stuff with his son and be a better dad. Mm. And as I said, Christian got out of prison in 1996. He didn't stay out of the news, though. In 2004, Christian's name came up as a possible suspect in the murder of actor Robert Blake's wife, Bonnie Lee Backley. And I will talk about that in my next episode. Ooh! cliffhanger yeah i remember a lot of that you know i read people magazine well, and I, watched I mean, inside edition and a current affair and but i had forgotten about a lot of well, it christian who died in 2008 spoiler alert i don't think it was premeditated murder i do think that he did shoot him maybe not meaning to but i don't think there was a struggle i think he just shot well, him. a lot of things you know people want this black and white narrative yeah. but a lot of things especially when people are fucked up don't have well i can't imagine what i i'm not making excuses for him but his childhood must have sucked his mother was a fucking she lived in a trailer park um with her dog who was cute and she um 
she had nothing good to say about Marlon, I can tell you that. But at the same time, she was totally, she tried to blame everything on him, and he saw, he wasn't a good father, but I think he felt the only thing he could do was take that kid away from her. She was not a good mother. I mean, no. and that poor little boy going back and forth, I, I mean. I know. Well, one of the things, too, you see a lot of that with these celebrity kids who, their lives are just kind of anchorless. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, they is. He had an, and he they're not had given nothing. any sense of direction, yeah. ambition, or, you know. But I, I honestly, and again, I'm not making excuses for Marlon, because he could have, he could have been not an asshole. But he also had no... Well, he had a fucked up upbringing, He was too. fucked up. Yeah. I mean, he really was. And and he's one of those people that's weird because in some ways he was very progressive about uh, race relations. Like the time he had the Native American. Well, her. He also was pro-civil rights and stuff like that. Right. But he also treated women like shit. Um, well, you see that a lot. I mean, yeah. That's you true. know, people don't make the distinction. No. Men necessarily don't make the distinction between progressive well, politics and how you treat women. Well, like abolitionists didn't different. give a shit about women's rights. Right. Separate. So No, but poor Cheyenne and then Dag just got sucked into that family and I don't blame him for wanting to. It is sad. She she had serious I, issues and Christian had serious issues. Yes. And then as we've seen in many of these um, stories, adding guns into the... And drugs. Uh, drugs and alcohol. Also... She had issues. I don't think being controlled by a nut job like Marlon Brando was going to help her issues no. resolve themselves. That one of the reasons I think she definitely, and part of it could have been a brain injury, but I think she had issues from from before yeah. that. Her life with her mother was pretty stable, though. She she wasn't like Christian. She had a good relationship with her mother and she spent most of her life in Tahiti her brother he's kept pretty low profile he lives in Tahiti but she but she was still Marlon Brando's daughter yeah I know she and was. I don't think younger people realize how huge yeah. and I'm not talking about his girth I'm talking <laughs> about his stardom back then I know like with even, even when he was I know I was gonna say even when he was near the end of he, life like the god he was huge I mean his star well, that Don Juan DeMarco, even yeah. that was a big but yeah. Anyway, so that was my first part. Ooh, and the second part, you're... Christian's just a bit player in. But still, the celebrity. It's the Hollywood. Yeah. What, I, I seem to like these celebrity ones, don't yeah, I? Yeah, you do. You do. I've done a lot That's of good. them. Well, thanks. That brings back a lot of memories. and Yeah. And I think we have some recommendations. Yeah. So, so you can go first. Thank you. Yeah, mine is a documentary. I first saw it several months ago, but wasn't thinking of doing a rating. And then after I watched it, I said, oh, I should do a rating. So I rewatched it last Ooh. night. Sour Grapes. Oh. I saw it on Netflix. It's about a young man, Rudy Kernuan, who is involved in wine selling. And it's not a spoiler to reveal that very early in the documentary, you find out he's he's selling off fake wine which you may not you may be like what why don't we just get into the ratings and i can talk about it as we get in okay bad reenactments i'm happy to say no yay because there are no reenactments none not a zilch and once again proving you can do a documentary without reenactments 
and it works just fine. Narrative cliches, there is no narrator. So again, there are, you know, um, what would you, what do you call those cards or, you know, every once in a while there's an informational thing. So you have to watch the movie instead of like looking at your phone or whatever. Sewing like I do. Racial gender obtuseness, not on the part of the movie, but I am going to slip into criticizing the people in it. And I won't take any points away, but it's just a way to talk about this. The wine auction world is for very, very wealthy people. It's a boys club and it's all these rich assholes. As one of the women, her name's Maureen, Maureen Downey, she's a wine auction house owner, points out these people have fuck you money which mm-hmm. is just all this money where they can throw away and not care about it. And some of the characters in the movie, there's a group called the Angry Men, <laughs> which is very, very rich white guys who get together occasionally to have these fairly obnoxious-looking wine-tasting parties where they have good food and they, they're they very boisterous and mm. drink good wine. Sounds like, really like something and, I'd want to go And I have to. to say, I know that there is an art to understanding wine. I know there's a lot to it, and I'm not um, demeaning that. But it also, what these guys are involved in and everything just seems like a lot of bullshit. And some of that comes out in the movie, which yes. I like, which I'll talk about in the storytelling. But it's fairly clear Rudy is a con man, a very good one. And it's funny because he's on film. They have a lot of film of him, which I'll get to in visuals. But just for the sake of this, I'm going to say, because apparently somebody was going to do a reality show of him or something, or a food show. This was in the mid-2000s, right before the recession hit but he's never you can see he's never saying something of substance he's agreeing with people and stuff but these guys some of these guys in this movie who they interviewed were just totally bamboozled by him in such a classic way and this one guy and he's the kind of person you only see in fucking like LA even and I've only been there like once in the 90s and probably didn't see anybody like this but what I know from movies and TV (laughs) he's kind of an overweight guy with Uh, That Harvey Weinstein kind of stubble, Mm -hmm. you know, that salt and pepper stubble that just looks like your face is dirty, it doesn't look cool. And he's wearing shades when they're interviewing him, and he's got like this lank hair parted in the middle and this kind of page boy hairdo. And he's really full of himself, and he thinks he's a lot smarter than he is. And there's one fantastic part of the movie where they're talking about how, you know, most of Rudy's wines were the real thing. And then they bring him, he and this other guy, and they're kind of drunk, bring him to this expert. And this expert is like, this is garbage. This is <laughs> this. And they're like, really? Wow. And so they obviously don't know as much as they think no they do. Shit. They're just these rich guys playing. And at one point he says, and you know, one of my big peeves is when people cite disorders without knowing anything about them. And he goes, well, Rudy couldn't have done what they say he did because he, you know, he has ADD and, you know, he couldn't focus on one thing for long enough. And I don't know if Rudy had ADD or not or had been diagnosed, but I'll tell you one thing, what this guy, and this guy's nickname was Hollywood Jeff, by the way, and I think he was a movie producer or something. You can hyper-focus on shit. And Rudy was very, very into this con he was running. And I absolutely guarantee you somebody with ADD or ADHD oh, yeah, they can, can, do it. can focus the living shit 
out of something. Especially when you're making millions of money. Well, he was in debt, too. I don't want to give away the whole movie. There was another guy, a more sincere guy, but also a movie producer, that said, oh, he was so generous. He gave me a bottle of blah, blah, blah for my birthday, and that really meant a lot. Which is some kind of proof. And what people don't realize when you're being conned, people groom you. And you hear that a lot about manipulative people yes. or, or a psychopaths or common. Oh, how generous they were, how wonderful they were, because you know them on a superficial yes. level. It's like they we know... talked about in the Rockefeller, the Tale of Two Rockefellers. Right, so yeah. those cliches it, were not the fault of the movie. And those guys are basically shown, if you do any like critical thinking when you're watching it, to be full of shit. Lack of good visuals, no. First of all, they had lots of film of Rudy. They also did... The the filming was nice. You got a lot of that. I know it's kind of a cliche thing, but where you have a person in some kind of big background, you know, almost stylized. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of access to things. Like there was this big wine auction in 2008 where everything just kind of went to hell. They had film of that. They also, it opens with this vintner, I think that's what you call him, somebody who grows wine. This guy in France, in the Burgundy region of France, who ended up coming to New York when he realized his wine was being forged, counterfeited. And he's like this noble hero in the movie, and I'll talk more about that in storytelling, but they film him in his vineyard and stuff, and they also film him going to New York. They must have got him to come back because they weren't, there, I don't think, when he originally went. Or, and they do a nice job of showing that. They show how you can do a good documentary without needing reenactments at all. Yes. Even the the things they show, the detail things they show, are good. Another character is Bill Koch of the Koch brothers. Yes. The and non-Coke my takeaways, <laughs> my, my takeaways are this man has way, way more money than anyone. Is he single? Needs no, I think he's married. I, I don't know. You know he's like myself. ultra conservative, right? But I wouldn't have to talk to him and to tra- bilk him out of but, money. But it's funny because he had wine that was supposedly owned by Thomas Jefferson and stuff. He also he's not like these Hollywood fakers, and I never thought I'd be like on the side of Bill Coke. But he decided he was going to do something. He had spent $4 million on fake wine. He had this guy who's his, like, personal private detective. His dog keeps coming in. He has this fat little dog. (laughs) And he's very funny. It's funny how some people are just not taken in by this at all. But the people who want to be cool and want to be are so easily conned. And that's all the visuals. Oh, I was going to take away half a point on visuals because they show things. And I think given the spirit of the documentary and the way it's made, maybe you're supposed to get this. Like the French guy is talking about this meeting he had with Rudy. And the French guy saying, I said this and he said that. Then it'll show Rudy saying something that's similar. And you know it's not from there. It's from this film they had of Rudy and... It bugs me, and it kind of bugs the one thing that bugs me with it, the Ted Bundy tapes I was watching, too. When they show something, it's not clear if it's yes. the thing it's supposed to be or not. Okay. And so I'm taking away half a point. Missing pieces? No. They did a great job of telling a very complicated story. 
and got a lot of information in a topic I knew nothing about. I was able to understand what was going on, and there were a lot of layers. It's really good, so I don't want to wreck anything for people. Inaccuracy anachronism? No, not that I know of. They seemed to get everything right. Storytelling? It was excellent. The way it starts with the guy in France talking about making wine and stuff. And I remember the first time I watched it, I wasn't really sure what it was about. And I'm like, okay, we're going to watch a movie about yeah. wine. But the guy, he, the French guy's kind of cute in a French older guy way. And it was interesting. I liked his accent. Um, <laughs> but then it immediately starts going into this Rudy thing. You had a lot of talking heads, but they were all relevant. It Which wasn't been, yeah. It wasn't like somebody who had nothing to do with it. Like Carson Daly talking about it. <laughs> and people who are ripped off on different levels or tricked on different levels. And it's funny. There's a couple of women, Maureen Downey, and then there's one who's a food writer. The women were on to Rudy... Um, of course. Fairly early, and these rich guys weren't. But the way the whole thing unfolds, and they use a lot of the film of Rudy against him in a way. Mm. And you realize as you go in, he, he is never saying anything substantive. No. Everything he's saying is to make himself a buddy to somebody, or to agree with somebody, or to make himself look important, but it's not substantive. So... Great storytelling, freshness, freshness, yes. It's a story I hadn't heard before. It's yeah, told... It's a subject matter that you wouldn't... Right, it's told in a very no. engaging way. Oh, and back to storytelling, too. There's some drama. There was the big... Right after the stock market fell in 2008, where the recession just... Everybody realized, shit, this is going to be bad. There was this big wine auction, and that's the one the French guy came yes. to and said, withdraw my wine. Have you seen this? No. Okay. I just heard someone talk. Yeah, and obviously they have film of that. They don't have the film of the French guy, but they got him to go there and like stand there. And somebody said, oh, Jay McInery, who I'm not yeah. a fan of, but um, he goes, and there he was in the back of the room like Banquo's ghost. They... Talk about it in a way you can envision it. So it's great. Freshness, again, I said yes. Repetition, no. There are some repeated film clips and stuff, especially of Rudy, but it's all relevant. It's not like filling space or, you know, 48-hour style repetition, <laughs> I think we can call it, where they're just showing the same thing over and over because they don't know where to go. Beating the drum, no. You can draw conclusions, but they let you draw them yourself. I think some people would see how these guys were bamboozled and sympathize with them. I didn't it with them at all because they're a bunch of very, very rich bros. Br white male bro guys who think they're better than everybody else and who think they're so cool because they're into all this wine and, and they really don't know as much they as they They don't know what they they're talking and about. And I feel That's like even got... if I were that rich, I would not be spending my money. And, and nothing against wine, I understand. I and the thing, too, is you can drink it. You, say you pay 20 grand for a bottle of wine. You can drink it and it's gone. Or you just have it and you don't drink it. Because you had some investment. It's like people that collect any collectible, like toys that, right. well, if it's in the package and never been played with, it's like, but then what's the point? I don't know. And I really like the contrast between, like, the French guy and how really deep and rich 
his life is and his feeling for the wine is and how the money really isn't part of it at all and then the just the shallowness of the people and poor bill coke coke i don't feel bad for bill coke because he's helped destroy america in a lot of ways but it's in this film i do sympathize with him although he does have way you got to see this guy's house in his wine cellar and shit. And he has oh, his no, bathroom. Yeah, like the whole ceiling's made out of wine corks and yeah. stuff. Because it's shit, oh, you know. God. What else are you going to do with your money? Also, one interesting contrast I found. At the very, very end, the guy who owns the vineyard has this little party for his pickers. And he said, you know, each of you picked like two million barrels. <laughs> why I don't know what he... Something like that. And they sing this little song and they're just normal people. And that party contrasted with like the bacchanalia obnoxious los angeles bro parties and there are other people to a lesser extent like the woman maureen the wine auction woman and stuff there are people who are into it because they love what they're doing and love wine and stuff and then there are people where it's just this facade and shit and that's one of my takeaways so I highly recommend it. Yeah, I think that was good. a 9.5. 9. It. It's on Netflix. It's pre- I think I've seen it other places, too. Like, maybe when I had Amazon, I saw it there. It but it's on Netflix, you do have to do a search for it. For sour, sour grapes. grapes. It won't come up if you just look in documentaries oh, and stuff. Interesting. You know, I'll have to what, put it on I, my They don't list. show everything. It's, um, I've, I enjoyed it as much the second time as I did the first Ooh. time. I think you can watch it a couple times. Yeah, it's one of those ones. It's funny, though. What I always think of both of us are fascinated by, a lot of people are, obviously, hoaxes and yeah. or frauds. Yeah. It reminds me of the Rockefellers. and I always think of that one the French one, the French guy saying, which is kind of a truism, but still, he said basically part of it is their fault. He said basically I wouldn't have been able to con them if they weren't greedy. It's not excusing him, but it's true. And they know who to target and who to not target. Right, and also you notice with Rudy, you know, when I said he doesn't say anything substantial, but also he does, like there's these rumors, he has a million dollar trust fund and all this, but people ask him and he says, I don't talk about my family. So he lets And that was similar to like that Clark Rockefeller. Like he was much smoother. There's some people who are very clunky and tell these big stories about themselves and stuff. And and we talked about that in that Rockefeller one too where that Clark Rockefeller would be like, well, you know, my aunt, but he wouldn't come out and say anything. Right. And let people and he, he made himself look like just this very genial kind of almost dorky, everybody's buddy kind of guy, and people were drawn in, so drawn in by it that they're, that they still can't admit, and also they don't want to admit they were conned, but that they don't understand that because they're greedy and superficial, they were conned. Or not greedy in a not lot of gre- this. Not greedy. In a lot of this, it was needy or, need, or wanting to be one of the really cool yeah. rich people who are doing this totally. And and like Bill Coke isn't even one. Of, even though he has this huge wine collection and sp- spends millions on he's wine, on a different, but it's like he's a, he's I'm on a different so plane. rich. Yeah. I'm so rich and cool. That I am going to blatantly, so everybody can see me and everybody knows, spend my money on something that you don't in a million years need to spend your money on. That's right. Well, thank you. 
Yeah, okay. one I'm doing is also kind of a, it would depend on your point of view, whether it's a hoax or performance art or what. But I did mine on the documentary. It came out in 2016 called Author, the J.T. Leroy story. I had heard of J.T. Leroy and I heard her interviewed a while ago on, well, it's Laura Albert is the name of the real person. Spoiler alert. I heard her interviewed on Fresh Air a few years ago. She is an author. I think it was the early 2000s. The, the books she wrote were not my cup of tea. What put, type of book were they? They were supposedly memoirs. Or the person was this J.T. Leroy, was this character i will say character they were marketed as novels but they were also written as memoirs Mm -hmm. and people thought that this jt was a real person a young man but who was gender fluid kind of who had been a prostitute i'm sorry sex worker since childhood whose mother was a truck stop sex worker so uh, people bought into this story And also, this was the next big thing, writer. Everybody thought this person, this writer was so great and blah, 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 blah. And see, I haven't read her book, the books. I'm assuming that she is a really good writer. And that's why, because a lot of writers liked her. But I don't know. Because sometimes when there's stuff like this, the subject matter overshadows the actual writing. Sometimes or there's an art. emperor's new clothes yes, thing exactly. where everybody talks about But I also think someone. that if she had... I'll, I'll get into that okay. later. I'm going to go through the bat because I have m- many opinions on it. Okay. Bad reenactments? No. I don't believe there were any reenactments at all in this. So if there were... By the way, where did you watch it? Because I can't on Amazon watch it right on Amazon. Yeah. And I would recommend it. Yeah, I'll have to pay. Narrative cliches, not in the um, not in the documentary. The documentary is mostly her telling her story, which uh, I'll get to that in storytelling or whatever what the issues are with that. So there really aren't cliches unless she's saying cliches, and she wasn't. It was actually kind of interesting. Uh, racial and gender stereotypes no racial gender obtuseness right mm-hmm. not really no uh, she tells her story she uh, I don't believe there were many people of color in it uh, but it's mostly about her who's white and her story so there is really bad obtuseness among the people she talked to because I'll talk about it a little later but she kind of played the character of J.T. Leroy who had this really fake sounding to me southern accent <laughs> and also another character named Speedy who had a really bad British accent but <laughs> who fooled people so I don't know lack of good visuals no there's a lot of photographs of her they did use the same ones over so I'll talk about that later but an audio since we said a lot of times we put audio in with visual I swear to god she taped every single phone conversation she ever fucking had <laughs> so we had all this audio of her talking to all these different people Courtney Love Billy Corgan who she had in a relationship with and well I'll talk about that later. So Well so many things you're gonna talk about later. Yes, I know. It's going to be quite... So I will say they're pretty good. The visuals, um, so-so, because it's mostly her talking, and then they're showing photographs. But the audio was interesting. Missing pieces, yes, there were missing pieces because it was her point of view. They didn't talk much about the people that felt affected by what she did. It's arguable whether she did it on purpose or not, and I'll talk about that later. I'm going to take a point away from missing pieces because I felt like 
I would have liked to have seen more than just her point of view. Right. They don't have to show that, but it would have made it a lot more interesting. Inaccuracy and acronyms, no. Unless you want to count her fake memoir. (laughs) Um, Storytelling, again, I'm taking away a point because I thought it was really self-serving, her whole story. If you didn't know anything about it, you probably would think what she did wasn't that big a deal depending on your point of view it might not i honestly don't think it's but i can see why people did because she pretended to be somebody she wasn't she fooled a lot of people well, and i'll talk about it more well when I'm done and i would my... say as a writer and i and i only know about this what you've talked about because i haven't seen it and i know there's a couple other things like on one of those reality tv like as a writer it's frustrating that somebody would misrepresent yes I'll something talk about no matter that how later. good a writer they may be i'll talk about my feelings about okay freshness it's fresh even though the story we know about this it was interesting the way it was presented was interesting i knew the story but frankly wasn't that interested in it because her writing wasn't it's just not that i don't want to put down people that have had a bad childhood or that have had a horrific childhood but it's almost like voyeuristic to have this book that is depicting this horrible childhood and everyone's like unless you gotta read this book there has it's one thing if it's Angela's ashes which he had a horrible childhood and it was but it was a beautifully written and it was just it was sincere and also there was a story arc so it's not just here I'm presenting this horrible childhood but there needs to be some kind of and maybe there is I don't I don't want to judge the writing because people did like it so I I, I people like a lot of shit I know so repetition I'm taking a half a point off And beating the drum, I'm taking, and I'm putting these together, beating the drum a point off because the repetition, they kept showing the same photographs over and over. It's like, Jesus, I don't need to see those anymore. And beating the drum for Laura Albert, for her, because she had to keep telling and like trying to minimize what she did or say that she didn't realize it. I don't know. It's, I, I just felt like there was too much of trying to make her look like she was blameless. What I'm going to say about about the whole issue for my, and I know we have different opinions because we talked about it before, which kind of reminds me of My Kid Could Paint That, that documentary, because my feeling is more, and and I'm not right or wrong, this is just the way I feel about stuff like this, is the thing that matters is the product, the art. So if you like a piece of art, it doesn't matter where it came from. If you look at something or if you read something and you think it's good and you like it, whether it's true or not to me, it's like it doesn't matter. Even if I understand what you're saying, if it's misrepresented and I'll let you say what you're feeling about it is. To me, it's like if you like that, like with Jonathan Franson with his whole thing came out and it was a similar thing where he said it was a memoir and he lied. He made shit up to make it a better story if somebody read that book and said wow this is a really good book it shouldn't matter whether it's true or not but i also can understand which is your point of view is it does matter well first of all i'm not totally clear on what exactly happened oh well so she represented herself she let people believe that but, this was a real person. She talked to them. She never really met people. Did, she, she, she talked. She posed as this. She person. didn't let me tell. You, she talked to people on the phone. Yes, as this person, JT. She she started out by calling this helpline when she was a teenager. And no, she was thirty. Was years any old. of this her childhood? No. 
Okay. No, she totally made right, it she up. she totally made it Which up. Which brings me to another... I know that I just said it shouldn't matter whether she's lying or not, but in a way, the fact that she was a 32-year-old woman, she started calling this teen helpline, and she claims it was because she was depressed or whatever. She started posing as this young man, gender-fluid person, but a male, with a fake Southern accent. <laughs> and this guy on the other end who was a psychologist, and she began this relationship over the phone where he believed what she was telling him then she wrote it down she became she'd always been a writer but then she wrote it down in this book and then she talked to a lot of people all the phone conversations none of them are her in her real voice Mm -hmm. they're all her either as jt Leroy or speedy the british (laughs) person and you have to watch it to get the whole thing what happened was her sister-in-law or is it I think she was married, yeah, or or her boyfriend, her either her boyfriend sister or her husband's sister, who was a young kind of androgynous, tiny woman, started posing as the actual J- when JT had to make like personal appearances. Oh, okay. So that's how they did it. Oh, okay. Well, and, and it is an interesting story. It's fascinating, and uh, in a lot of ways reminds me of Laura Albert's view. Is the whole thing was kind of a. Performance. performance are or like a yeah like social a social experience yes type of bo- right. bullshit um i think that's backpedaling the funny thing i think is is courtney love when she knew it was a like a fraud didn't give a shit right she kind of wanted to just jump on the wagon right. let's let's do it you know i mean just which you might as well double down You're on right. it, you know but, but But one thing is, well, first of all, I want to say a point I didn't make, which comes to this a little bit on mine. Rudy's defense attorneys were like, oh, what does it matter? It was just wine, blah, blah, blah. But he defrauded people out of money or the kind of thing. Well, if rich people get fooled because they're superficial, that's their problem. The thing about art and writing is art. Um, you mentioned the documentary My Kid Could Paint That, and we highly recommend that, too. Oh, that's so good. But the thing about that documentary is people thought the art was painted by a six-year-old or whatever girl yes. when her dad, apparently, spoiler, yes. had something to do with it. And context matters. If context didn't matter, there wouldn't be genres like memoir, nonfiction, fiction, blah, blah, blah. A memoir is what you've made, the story you've made out of what happened to you when you can't make shit up. Yes. And it's it's quite, as somebody who's read hundreds (laughs) in the Writer's Digest self-published contest, and I won't go into whether they were good or not, but I can tell you this, it's not enough to say this all happened to me. You have to take stuff that really happened to you and form it into art when you can write fiction and is somebody who's a journalist who spent you know decades working with making stuff up no sorry yeah, right but Point working with not being able to make stuff up and then being able to make stuff up they're two totally yes, different things are. and that was the issue with jonathan franzen too if you're saying this is my story yeah, horrible and ugly as it is, I've made this beautiful thing out yes. of it. It's a lot different than saying, I'm a, this white middle class person who's imagined this yes. story. I don't know because I haven't watched it if she actually defrauded people out of money or did anything criminal. 
But it's not nice to trick people. And also, as a writer, it pisses me off. I could write something that looked like a memoir that was fiction, and, you know, it would get much more notice mm-hmm. than uh, than the same book if it were fiction. Yes. She's actually insulting the craft yes. of writing and insulting writers yes. and insulting the people who read well, and the, like her books. The other people she's Even really insulting, told. the other side of it, is the people who have actually lived lives like that. Right. She's imagining, she totally out of whole cloth made up this whole truck stop, sex working business, this child... Right. Yeah, you... No, I'm not defending what she did, but I'm saying if... I'm saying to the people that read the book and thought it was wonderful, you can't just say, no, it's not anymore. I could. I could. I could. If I read a different. I know, and we have two different points of view If I was a book thinking... Let's take Angela's Ashes. Mm -hmm. If I, I thought it was a great book. If I read it as fiction, I may not have liked it that much. Yes. Because... When you can see somebody making shit up, yes, that's true. It's different. I and I agree with you. I agree with you partially on that. I'm wishy-washy about it. Apparently, I don't know how to put it, but I. It's more with visual art than with writing. But right. what my feeling is like sometimes the people that say they think something is really great are only saying it because it's, of what other people are right. saying or what they think it is. So it's more about but it, them. But do you do you think if you look at a painting and no, don't know anything about it, what do you think about it? Right. What do you think of it? Do you think it's good? I can look at something well, without knowing who painted it and that, think it's good or not. I don't not. think people would have thought it was good if they knew a man I in know. his 30s painted it that's true you know and but with, and also you have to ask yourself I have why would laura albert pretend it was a memoir and pretend it was this young although person. i will say it was it when it was it was put in the fiction well, section then it how wasn't put did in it, memoirs. How, but the same thing happened with roots they they tried to market it as a even he though he wrote it as home. fiction so then how did it how did the people the, believe the, that she was a real person and she and she let them, she let them she led to people the point to believe where that she had somebody pose as yes so she did she she even though she so saying it's somewhere not, along the line you have to watch the documentary. yeah I have to watch it but does well, that's, it maybe that's one of the missing pieces yeah the, does no. it explain how it went from being fiction to people thinking it wasn't? No, it doesn't. That's one of the missing pieces. She also was a musician, and that, that's a whole uh, other area. Mm. I, under, I understand what you're saying, and I do agree with context mattering, but I also feel like it's more about the people... Like, if you're the person who likes something, why are you saying you like it? Is it because you think it's really good, or is it because everyone's telling you it's really right. good? Right, and I understand that, too, that people... Just like the wine people, yes. they can be superficial and want to be followers, which neither of us are, so we don't fully understand. Uh, again, if somebody's saying, when you read a memoir like that, part of it is, wow, this person overcame this shittiness yeah. to create this thing. Not, and there are tons of real uh, memoirs that are actually very good. Like I was thinking The Glass Castle, if you've never read that. I think they read a movie, right. made a movie I liked, out of it. Um, uh, what was the one? Liars Poker. The Liars? Not the Liars Club. The Liar. The Liars Club. It was. I never read that one. But she was one of the ones that 
the author, Mary, she was one of the ones that was saying what a great because memoir she thought it was, was a memoir. I know, I know. Now, because she thought it was a memoir. You know, that's the thing. I know. And it is. I, I feel like she defrauded the readers and other writers. But the people, if you grew up in a shitty, shitty existence like that, it's almost making a mockery. It is. To write a book that she, they asked her, they said, well, do it's you have any, there, do you have any, and she's like, no, I just made all of it up. I didn't. No, it was just came to me. I just made it up. Yeah. Like, because she's a writer and she can make up stuff. Yeah. It's just not, you know, I understand your point that people who liked it for the good writing shouldn't all of a sudden be, oh, I was fooled. Yeah, it isn't good after well, all. I think... but, but what I'm saying is, too, good writing is such a subjective thing and the context can have an effect on whether the writing is good or not. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So anyway. God, but yeah. good. I'll have to watch that. I think you'll enjoy it. It's, it's annoying, but, though, in some ways. But way. like She's I said, a, I'm, I saw another one I enjoy. I, I was glad I watched it, but I found her to be annoying and some of the story to be annoying, and partially because it was just like... I mean, I'm glad she was so honest, and she, she was very honest about the whole uh, well, thing. Well, at some point she must not have been... To let people believe what they believe, though. But I think a lot of people, just like anyone that's conned, I don't think a lot of people wanted to would want right, to talk like about wine, it. Right, just like the wine, wine, and that wine thing. Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkin. She did confide in him. Who well, did, he must have known he wasn't having a no he relationship was, with a gender fluid young no, boy. He thought he no, he thought she was speedy. I think. Oh, <laughs> you have to see it. <laughs> Jesus. You have um, to see it. Well, what I'm going to look for but the Billy other Corgan's one I saw. Billy very unattractive. Yeah, I know. But guys can get away with that and still have... Look at... Oh, yeah, I don't know what I can say. But <laughs> I'm, I'm going to look for the other one that's not from her point of view oh, that I saw. The imposter. I, or one of those I saw shows. that, yeah, I saw... Was it on Netflix? They have that show, Imposter? No, I think it was on ID. Um, oh. It might be on Netflix, too, though. Hello. So Thank next you. time it'll be me again. Yeah, part two of your celebrity murder parade. Yeah. And um, the again, B, the we want to thank our we want to thank our newest Patreon supporters, and hopefully we um, the software that we're giving a trial today I hope we will it sounds be able better. to buy. Thank you, everybody. Yep, and, and you'll find us on. Crime and, Crime stuff, and stuff Online, online is our website where you can find all our old um, episodes. Follow our us Patreon. on Twitter if you can. I've like, been trying to round we're trying up to more. Yeah, we're trying to get more Twitter followers by actually tweeting once in a while. Yeah. There's just so much. So we say this all the time. I know. I we're just so hard. hard. Well, we both work. I need to do social media stuff for my job. I need to do it for my writing. There are different things you do for different things. And... Um, <laughs> And also, it in a way is a way to give back without actually having to deal with people too much. I did my town's newsletter, you know, that goes out to all the residents. Because they don't have a newspaper. Reports from the no, it, even newspaper, no news. It's like reports from the department heads and stuff. It goes out every few months, and um, that. Does it have a gossip column? No. Oh. All the department heads send their <laughs> stuff to me, and even though I said don't do any formatting, don't do any bullet What if facing, they listen to this? No, oh, like anybody <laughs> is listening to, no, I don't think so. 
Don't, and if they are, they they already know what I'm going to say. Don't do any <laughs> underlying. Don't friggin' format with the space bar below. But so don't put it in a PDF. I ain't want docs. And of course, it all came all formatted and Wasn't shit. Wasn't that nice of them? Well, it's because people don't understand. They don't listen to instructions. No, they don't. So I just undid it all. So anyway, that's just to say I have a lot going on in social media sometimes. But we know that... I'm a mom. Yeah, whatever. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, and we know that we need to do the social media to be part of the hip happening podcast. It's very difficult. Podverse. It's just difficult because, yeah, we both have... I have two jobs now, too, so I have my full-time job and I have a part-time job. With our brother, Billy. He's not my... No, it's with the other person that works there, yes, but yeah. So anyway, I think we're, we're, we've rambled on. Good night, everybody. Yeah, thanks for listening. Okay, bye. Bye. Yeah? I heard something. That was my chair. Oh, okay. I thought it was like a squirrel or something. Bill K. <laughs> <laughs>